So, Rebecca, a bunch of emails. What do you say we get into it? Trauma, trauma, trauma. Yeah. Bring it up. <laughs> I sent you some of the questions <laughs> I wrote back. I was prior. Like, oh my god! And there's a lot of questions about trauma, but this first question is about social media and therapists. Mm-hmm. So, anonymous separateer patron. This is a while back. This was a few months ago. Wrote in and said. There's a therapist on TikTok who made a post where she cited this article titled The Rise of Single Lonely Men from Psychology Today. She said that black men will die alone if they don't go to therapy. By the way, she's black herself. As a consequence, she lost her job over this. Some people are defending her, but I'm wondering if what she said was ethical. Her TikTok is at unusually brie if you're interested. So I found this post on Reddit that was explaining the situation, Mm -hmm. Rebecca. So I thought I would just kind of go over what exactly happened here. So this is is from the news reports. From what I've been able to see, she's an LPC, a licensed professional counselor in Ohio. She had over uh, uh, 100,000 followers on TikTok at the time, but... Because of this controversy, she now has 300,000 followers on TikTok. Oh, boy. Not the reaction that people who fired her expected. Right. She was expressing frustration yeah. with her black male clients mm-hmm. who, according to her, lack emotional intelligence. And the video was filled with curse words. Oh. She was referring to women as B words and oh. men as dusty MFers. And she made reference to the fact that 90% of her caseload are black men. Several people, predominantly black men, went to Twitter to complain about her video. And the post proceeded to go viral on TikTok and Twitter because of that. A black female journalist wrote an article about the video proceeding to release her full legal name and private practice that she worked at because her TikTok wasn't necessarily explicitly connected with her Mm -hmm. professional life, you know? It wasn't like her professional TikTok account. It was sort of like her personal, personal, I guess. Right. As a result, the practice was flooded with complaints and Mm -hmm. she was terminated because she was working for someone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was... um, I watched the video and basically... Uh, the commentary uh, from her was a, a bl- about black men, and she was pretty negative about black men. <laughs> and um, she also made an apology video and response videos after the fact. So the question is, uh, well, what do you think about that, first off? Well, in listening to this whole story, I'm like, the world we live in right now is so crazy. We've had these questions a couple times. It seems like whenever, well, I just wonder what percentage of therapists who go on TikTok to complain about their current clients does it fare well with? We've got two stories where it does not fare well. And I would say it's not a good idea for therapists. I don't know if the, I, I'm sure ethically it's wrong. You're not supposed to publicly talk about your clients anywhere. Well, I'll get into that in terms of the the nuances because I've thought about it and, mm-hmm. and have the exact ethical codes that we can go over. But it's potentially unethical, yeah. But it's it's not cut and dry. It's not as cut and dry as other kinds of ethical violations. 
So I would just say morally or entertainment wise, does the world need you to do this? Can we just say no? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. To say that obviously this work has its frustration. We see patterns in our work that have frustrations. Can you talk about that vaguely on social media? Yes. I would hope so. Are that you know, every time I tell a story here, I tend to like calculate and like mm, has it happened more than once so if i tell this story about a client about a quote client is it kind of a generalization of right multiple clients probably yes well why do you do that because i don't want anybody to write me and say you talked about me on the podcast and i want to be able to write back actually that's it, that's kind of a generalized experience that I talked about on the podcast. Mm-hmm. This person is talking about a generalized podcast, but is being really intense about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did hear this crazy statistic. So Leslie Jones right now is hosting uh, The Daily Show, mm-hmm. and it's killing it. You sent me some clips. So funny. And she did this thing about male friendship, or I guess... I don't know if it's a cross race, but I guess among men in America, 15% of men have zero friends. Mm -hmm. So yes, it is a crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, Did this person talk about it in the best way possible? Clearly not. They got fired. They had to put out apology videos. But then, you know, in our world, what has value? Is it working for them to have 300,000 followers? Did they easily find another job? Um, what is punishment in this situation? I'm going off. I don't even I've lost. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Those are good questions. And you kind of have to watch the video. It's it's all about the tone. And if you hear the quotes, it like I would I heard the descriptions and I was like, whoa. And then I watched the video and it it both seemed worse than it was described and not as bad. Hmm. It was it was interesting. It's. Um, She's really exasperated. It's like mm-hmm. it, it felt to me like she had been having a lot of frustration, as you were mm-hmm. saying, that it's normal as therapists for us to have frustration, uh, whether it's like I am frustrated that clients have resistance or I'm frustrated that clients don't show up on time or I'm frustrated that so many people are being oppressed in this world and I'm just doing i'm trying to help these people while society is harming them or you know there's just various different frustrations that are common to us and so it felt like she had a, a she said in in these interviews or videos that 90 percent of her clients are black men and according to her she was running into a lot of black men who have a lot of difficulty expressing their feelings and were suffering and you know you, know, you could imagine being a therapist and session to session to session running into the same problem and and possibly some resistance or a lot of resistance from the clients who are maybe even overtly saying i'm a man i don't have those kinds mm. of emotions or you can't uh, i don't you're treat you're you're treating me like i'm a woman or i don't know who knows what she was running into but uh and then of course seeing these men suffer and it's her job to try to help them not suffer and so she's running up against this over and over and over again then she at the end of the day turns on her recorder her phone and just records this rant where she's 
speaking her truth, which is fine to do in supervision and consultation or at the mirror, <laughs> but to the internet, to the entire world, that that's questionable, obviously. So what I'll say is that, you know, to look into the ethics about this, and she would be adhere, uh, you know, hold held to the ACA, the American Counselors Association, which is what you would be held to as well, and the Art Therapy Association. Yes. Because you're a light. Actually, a, I'm no longer a member. You're no longer a member of ACA, but if you had a. I'm a member of ACA. I'm no oh. longer an art therapist. Oh, right. We'll be get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talked about it before. It was because of the leadership. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to go for my creative arts therapy, but we can talk about that. Oh, there's a general creative arts therapy yeah. certification registered? Yes. Oh, I Please see. write me back and tell me that you've approved me already. Okay. <laughs> back, to, back to what we were talking about. So the question, you know, you know, or the yeah, could it be argued that she violated confidentiality? That's the first mm -hmm. concern. And uh, what do you think about that? Did she violate confidentiality? Because mm -hmm. that's what she's being accused right. of. Right. I would say no because she didn't use anybody's name. I didn't. I haven't seen the video, so right. she didn't use anybody's name. And these are general facts. Right. right. That no one would be surprised by. Right. If you are, you're living in a cave. Yeah. Uh, to say 90% of my clients are black men and a lot of these black men are suffering in this way uh, is in the direction of revealing client information. Mm -hmm. And so I think most people would argue that it's not breaking confidentiality of a particular client. But that's I, so like I say, I work in South Seattle and I see adults with complex post-traumatic stress. Someone could post themselves out of my office and see who all my clients are. Mm -hmm. That's on them for being weirdos. Mm -hmm. um, well, another uh, angle is if, for example, you said that 90% of your clients are that and someone knows that they go to you, yes. then they would say, well, there's a pretty good chance that that person that I know, my friend or my coworker or my subordinate at work has that issue. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that's, that's breaking confidentiality because mm -hmm. you're giving the, the public diagnosis. enough, you're giving the public enough reason to know what this individual is talking about in therapy. And mm -hmm. so, this is why you don't do this kind of thing because it's it it, it risks that. But I, I it's not overt confidentiality breakage. And you and I on this podcast will say similar things. We'll say a lot of my well, I don't know if I've ever said. Well, no, I have. I've I've said statements like I remember not too long ago saying that all of my clients are people of color mm. now or something like that. Mm. <laughs> but. That isn't necessarily revealing client material, you know what I mean? Right. But I don't know a single therapist that doesn't advertise their speciality. Right. But another thing that I will say is, uh, and Bob will as well, uh, that we will say I was talking to a client earlier this week and we talked about X, Y, and Z. And uh, now, so the calculation, the algorithm, if you will, the formula of decision-making ethically is does the benefit outweigh the right. the risk and the, you have the always, risk of harm. like we are doing education on this podcast right that so it's not that i would say these things just to say them i'm mm -hmm. saying them to try to make a point to benefit society to 
help therapists who are listening to learn to normalize these kinds of things to maybe even if my client were listening to be further validated by mm-hmm. what I'm saying on the podcast, you know, now uh, I, I've, I hope I've never said anything in this vein that this therapist was saying, like just the, her tone was very punitive. Mm-hmm. She was like, she is burnt out and she was angry at her clients. Mm-hmm. She's like these, you know, dusty MFers are not, um, you know, they lack complete emotional intelligence. I can't remember the, the words she was using, but. But that's also messed up. I mean, she's not, that's just burnout. Like, you know, put that into context. Like, why is your client responding in that way? What are, what is the and institutionalized racism what is the historical oppression meaning what it's is, not the client's fault it's right. not like they show up on purpose to annoy yeah, you like to annoy oh you. look what time it is time to make my therapist hate me right exactly. you know i mean that is like the hard part of our work as a clinician like here i'll just speak for myself so here i am i'm an adult i work with adults with complex post-traumatic stress they get mad at me at session and regress it is my job to hold the container of therapy and think about they are exhibiting this behavior because of their childhoods and all kinds of factors. Do I look at them and say, stop acting like a whiny baby? No. Right. You know, I hold the space and say, hey, there are many, many things I could say in that moment. One of them is, do you feel like a younger self is really present right now? Yeah. And the idea that like black men aren't allowed to be emotional, you know, we could go off on that for hours. Like yeah. it's not safe for them to have connections. You know, this is part of post traumatic slavery complex. This is a huge part of racism. This is, and you know, and toxic masculinity. Right. This yeah. We could go on at length. But so here this this woman did this thing. Yeah. And so, she got punished. Right. So confidentiality we could say maybe, but not. This is the a sick huge part of my brain is like black woman therapist. That woman got a job the next day. <laughs> like that is. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean that is. There is such a high need for people of color therapists. Mm. Yeah. I hope she got a job the next day. I can't tell you how many people write me and they're like, "I'm looking for a black woman therapist," and I here in Seattle, I'm like, "Well, good luck." Yeah. Um, so I hope this woman is getting paid well at her next gig yeah. and has learned her lesson. So another question ethically is, could it be argued that she published statements that alienated her current clients and harming treatments? Yes. Yeah. If you go online and call your clients, if you swear about your clients, and I know many of my clients listen to this podcast, so I think I would hear back. Yeah. If I had put them down. Yeah. Um, that's This is the main uh, ethical argument, I think, which is I, even if w- w- just one of her clients felt insulted and hurt and harmed and unsafe in future sessions, then that is absolutely an ethical violation. Mm-hmm. You can't go online and just start screaming at your clients and calling them names and risking alienating those clients it's just it's it's not okay (laughs) Um, now the major caveat to this is people will make an argument that 
she was speaking within the style of black mm-hmm. men. Right. Similar to the Saturday Night Live skit, Black Orchid, like, you know, take, take no shit. <laughs> yeah, it's possible that when she talks in that style, the black men having heard it, of her, if her clients had seen it, which I'm guessing many of them did, that they might receive it as nurturing in a way of, to, of, to, of, of to a wake-up call. Right. Like maybe even within the masculine arena where you just confront someone. I've done that before with men where I will, and even with black men also, but just men in general, when I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with them, sometimes I'll just puff up and act like I'm a coach and I'll Hmm. just start. It's rare that I get to this, but there's been moments and I just start essentially talking down to them Hmm. (laughs) and saying like, look, pal, da 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 and often it works Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know because it's it's their language you know that's Mm -hmm. what they're used to hearing they're not used to hearing how do you feel about that or tons of validation so it could be argued that it actually enhanced the treatment we don't know if uh, someone came to me and said they were about to if a therapist trainee came to me or a or a colleague said you know I'm going to do this, and I and I'm quite sure that my all my clients will benefit in this way. I would say, well, you don't have to post it online. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, there's also like, you know, we are in a way <laughs> we're in the middle. So there's also by putting it, it's not just the clients, but the people that are paying you, insurance companies or her boss will see like, oh, this is your style, you're this harsh in mm-hmm. your off time, in your on time. Right. It's not attractive. Yeah. Is that the right word or it's not? It it could make us look all like this is what we do at this practice yeah. that we're we, tough love. We literally on be great. Well online, right? That, yeah. And I guess yeah, the when you say that I think absolutely you need to fire her because to set a precedent that that's acceptable behavior, mm-hmm. that one of your therapists who work for the practice can just rant on at will online and basically say anything they want to as long as they're not breaking an individual's confidentiality and berate clients like to establish that that's okay. It, you could imagine as a practice uh, feeling like no one's going to want to come to us because right. they're going to at all times worry that one of the therapists is going to start ranting about mm-hmm. them online. So, yeah. And for some of you in the know therapists out there, you know that there are there's a lot of this kind of communication happening online. This is not isolated to this individual. Maybe not to this degree where it's a video of just ranting about this, but people will post on public Facebook pages saying things like, oh, clients today, what a disaster, or something like that. And it's it's a known fact, you know, it took us a while to establish the ethics regarding this because social media happens so quickly and our field tends to move so slowly. But it's it's a well-established ethical norm that you don't do that. You, don't don't you, do that. You don't, uh, don't do that. publicly f- express your frustration because 
you could one harm a particular client and frankly you just make us all look bad you yeah know? you make us look like we're immature ranters online that can't handle their stuff now behind the scenes if you want to refer on in a public forum Boy, I had a, you know, I've had some rough times, you know, sort of generalizing it, not to a particular day, because then you would identify maybe a particular set of clients. And during those times, I consult. And when I'm consulting, I'm not exactly rational. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm getting burnt out sometimes. And I will sometimes vent my frustrations about clients. You know, you can say those kinds of things, right? But, and that would help because that might model for other therapists that that's okay and they should be doing that. But to to say the way that people will rant at, you know, they they work at Microsoft and they go on Facebook and they say, oh, Microsoft employees, what a disaster, <laughs> you know, like, okay, you're a Microsoft employee. When you're a professional, when you're a, you have, there's ethics, there's HIPAA, there's, there's so many laws and codes and all that. Anyway, so another question. Well, anyway, uh, getting back to that, have okay. you seen stuff like that online? Yes, and I was shocked. Yeah. And uh, one was a former student, and it was on... Of her, yours. Her, yes, and it was on her personal Facebook page, and it, I was like, do I say something? Like, hey, you got to not do this. What was like, it? What 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 they say? She worked with um, an autistic population and would often post, like, you'll never believe what wacky thing the kid did today. Oh. Like, like angry or just, just, just like, funny, interesting? You know, like on the spectrum goofy story but i was like no okay no <laughs> no 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 yeah no 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 right and it's a even bigger problem because if you have clients who might not be able to advocate for themselves because of a disability or something then that's an even worse situation right because even if they were harmed they wouldn't have the power to be able to advocate to fight back and there's the flip side of this especially with art therapists because like the projects are so dynamic um i'm amazed at how many art therapists especially ones working with kids which we know that's triggering for me they'll post full facial images of the kids with the art and be oh like, my god what and be like look how amazing this was and i'm thinking like do you have a release for each one of those kids and their Plus, parents? even if you did have a release from that kid that is not it doesn't justify it just because yeah. the kid and of course parents can sign off on yeah. those things but it's i've like, always look, told my trainees look at this great self-esteem group we did today and yeah. i'm like no 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 like yeah. i will post the directive that I am doing with clients that week, because I often do kind of a directive of the month of the week kind of thing, but I will never post client artwork or a picture of the person doing. Yeah. Imagine being a client. Yeah. Or a prospective client. And 10 years later, that kid, like this stuff yeah. is going to be up forever. And someone could be like, oh, I saw you in the self-esteem workbook when you were six. Yeah. yeah. No. Even though it's technically legal and ethical if you get consent from the kid and or the parents if the kid's below a certain age it is it is not okay yeah client artwork is essentially client material you're you're basically just publishing the session to the internet and that's that's just not okay if you're a mom and you want to show off your kid 
with a picture, fine, I guess, but even that has its issues these days. Anyway, so another question is professionalism. Do you think she could be accused of committing yes. an ethical violation regarding professionalism? Yeah, I mean, and the, you know, this is such a weird time because where does your professional identity end and your social media, like, downtime identity? Do you, can you remain anonymous um, on TikTok using your whole face? You know, you can just screenshot that and do Google image search and figure out who that person is. Right. So, uh, yeah. I mean, these times are ridiculous. Um, and no one has any anonymity anymore. I had the most modern anxiety dream last night that fits in perfectly to this. And I didn't even know you were asking me this question because it wasn't on the list. This is a surprise question for me. Well, the general question about social media was, but not this Not this specific. No. <laughs> uh, so in I had my, a dream about you, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, in my anxiety dream, which a lot of crazy things had happened, but this was the clincher, at the end, someone says there's a really scandalous viral video you on the internet and in the dream i've done all these outrageous things and so i'm like oh my god what thing got filmed <laughs> and they show me the video and i'm not even in the video and what's in the video isn't even like outrageous it's like you know some like cute little pet video have you seen where someone takes the seal song is it kissed by a rose and they do it with seals, just seals barking, make up the singing. No. Um, so it was something like that. And I'm like, I'm not even in that video. But it was like a modern anxiety dream where you're yeah. like, oh my God, there's a scandalous video of me. Why did and you have that video? Or why did you have that dream? I don't know. Are you worried about being exposed or accused of being exposed? I mean, I think who is not worried about being... I think I did yell at someone on the way... At a four-way stop, I think I lost my temper the other day. And you worried maybe you got filmed. Yeah. yeah. Or also, I am, because of my mother's death, I am binging um, Superstore, which is just like the oh, yeah. best. Yeah, I love, me and Stacy have watched that show religiously. I love it. And they're starting like season three, season four. They're constantly having meltdowns and being videoed in <laughs> the store having meltdowns. So I think it's kind of in my unconscious that. So anyways, I just thought that's such a funny anxiety dream. What did you yell at someone in the car about? I just was like, I just, it was a four-way stop and they didn't stop after the person. Oh. They didn't let me go turning. I had my turn signal on and I was just like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? And it was potentially seen by the driver. Who knows? Yeah. But these days, I think it's, I think it's, the more we talk, I think it's the superstore stuff. <laughs> like they're having a meltdown and there's eight people yeah. videoing them. So anyways, do I worry about this stuff? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's funny because I have the same thought process every, I don't know, once a year where something will happen on the road and I'll freak, I'll get angry and and yell or something not at the person but in my car and then i remember oh because often you can't see the driver mm -hmm. so they could be a client mm -hmm. they could be a student of mine mm -hmm. they could be a listener to the podcast mm -hmm. and i need to be thoughtful prior to being a professional i could just flip out at anybody <laughs> and and be a regular citizen and it wouldn't necessarily impact me but 
at a certain point I was like, you can't visually freak out at people because it could come back and haunt you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of professionalism and this, this, this counselor, it definitely comes across, I, th- you know, professionalism is not well-defined and I've actually looked into this quite a bit in various different thoughts situation <laughs> I've, I've run into this i remember there was a textbook in graduate school that talked about how an example of unprofessionalism of an ethical violation was if you were drunk at a bar and were visually oh. visibly drunk and i remember thinking that's absurd like you're on your off time right and you're not committing a crime you're not mm-hmm. doing anything bad and you're not allowed to be who you want to be. I, mm-hmm. I just thought that was a, a cultural judgment of what is considered quote unquote unprofessional. Is it a good look? Do you want to have that situation <laughs> is happen? That your, is that your daily MO? We hope not, but, but every uh, once in a while. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, you're allowed to live your I mean, according to that definition, uh, I don't know, uh, doing a drag show is mm-hmm. unprofessional because it's what? Like it's too flamboyant yeah what yes so if you're visibly drunk in a in a bar again you're not committing a crime you're not yelling Mm -hmm. at anyone it was just like you were i think it was even like you're dancing and you're drunk or something and and i just thought that doesn't sound right that's not a universal point of view there's and i've read lots of other stuff about what is because i'm concerned as a podcaster mm-hmm. about am i committing an ethical violation regarding professionalism and i've looked into all the experts and i've read a lot of the contemporary thinking around that because i know 30, that the thinkers in our field are 10 years behind right. i mean we're not getting if you if i consulted any of the professional organizations they don't understand what technology is capable of and right. they are it's not like we are getting active dialogues. It is like Kirk and I are on the cutting edge having this conversation right yeah. now. Literally five-ish years ago, I was at a training, at an official training on the ethics of social media in our field, using social media. And one of the older uh, participants and you know, students said that, she considered it, and a lot of other people agreed with her, she considered it completely unethical to even have a personal Facebook page. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Or, like, tons of my therapy friends, you know, use an alias on Facebook, and I'm like, who are you? Like, I, And I'm like, oh, you all went to that same training yeah. where you were told not to have a personal Facebook page. Which but, is absurd. Right. Like, it's absurd that yeah. that is considered unethical. And it's, it's not, actually, officially, but these But there's rumors, a lot of fear in our field so much fear yeah and and And, really a gross misunderstanding of the ethical codes because but then there's the flip where the younger generation has a huge instagram presence and does you know posts absolutely everything that they're thinking and doing and that's wild for me to watch too right i'm just like you know and they know they don't necessarily and there's actually a famous example of this that i won't disclose but where your legacy tweets, for example, mm-hmm. where you're 18 years old and you're ranting about, uh, and you're racist in these mm. tweets, you don't, once you become a therapist, go back and clean all that up mm-hmm. because that, you know, a client could find that and right. see it. And yeah. 
So, no, trust me, I Google myself all the time, and I'm super lucky that if you Google Rebecca Bloom, mostly what comes up is from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because she, her full name, her real name is Rachel Bloom and her character on the show was Rebecca. Oh. And so <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome that like the first two pages aren't even about me. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up a lot of information about what is considered to be professional and what is considered not. And my conclusion was, and a lot of the experts will say this, that it's such a squishy idea mm-hmm. that there are some things that are obviously unprofessional, like maybe this this TikTok video. But in terms of regular kinds of life, it's just really hard to make a case that something you know that's in the gray zone is professional or not. But anyway, could it be argued that she was unprofessional? Uh, y- yeah. Could it be argued that she's, again, speaking within her client's culture? That could be argued as well. It's just hard to know. But anyway, that's what I'll say about the ethics. So let's take a break and we get back. Let's answer some more. Snacky time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems, but there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well. And by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. So celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, we're back from the break. So, Rebecca, I know. So, while you're eating and the microphone's away from your face so that you don't trigger people's misophonia, I will read the next email and actually respond because it's pretty easy to respond to. Upper Deer patron Jasmine from Idaho wrote in and said, I succeeded in obtaining a BS, Bachelor's of Science in Psychology. I started my master's in marriage and family therapy, but I caught COVID, and within one month, my partner decided to leave me. Oh, God. 
I was unable to finish my first two classes due to brain fog that I'm still dealing with. All that to say, I have a BS in psychology. What in the world can I do with it? Mm -hmm. I actually have a pretty great job in a totally unrelated field, but wonder if there are any opportunities I'm overlooking. I wish I could use my degree even as a volunteer, maybe, mm -hmm. because psychology really is a field I'm passionate about and which really makes me feel excited to work in. End of email. So up at your patron, Jasmine, what I'll say is that there are very limited, there's a very limited amount of jobs available for people with bachelors in psychology. There are jobs as a paraprofessional, but you don't even need a bachelor's in psychology for that. I suppose it might help a little bit to get the job, but there are what we call paraprofessionals or techs, people who work alongside clinicians by, you know, like I used to work for an organization that did in-home therapy, family therapy, and we would occasionally have paraprofessionals that would say, uh, entertain the kids during a session or entertain the kids while the parents uh, clean their house or entertain the kids while the parents are trying to sleep or they might also come help the family uh, get groceries or set up the kids with a, a charity for the holidays or you know there's just these uh, tasks that might require a fair amount of know-how it's not without its skills, but it doesn't require a clinician. You're not providing treatment, that kind of thing. And I actually used to do this work when I was in graduate school. I, I was essentially a paraprofessional and I would do this kind of stuff. And you learn a lot because you're adjacent to the treatment. And that's one thing. You can also potentially work as a research assistant in a mm -hmm. psychology department at a university. I imagine that it might be kind of hard to get those kind of gigs, but that's another thing that you might be interested in looking into, particularly if you know the professors uh, from your bachelor's degree. Um, of course, you you could get all sorts of other jobs that are related, like you could work at a daycare, you could be a guardian ad litem. These don't require any education in psychology, but they are in that zone and they're not clinical and uh, they are very educational. Can you think of anything else, Rebecca? Well, I was thinking about the volunteer opportunity. There's you could there's tons of um, children's court work here in Seattle. That, yeah, guardian ad litem, yeah. that kind of advocates for kids. And then also, um, is it nine eight eight the um, the suicide hotline. the suicide hotline? Right, exactly. You volunteer it, somewhere like that. Yeah, the there are phone lines that mm -hmm. are very therapy adjacent because people are calling in crisis and you might be listening to an individual for 45 minutes. You're not providing a service, but you're not providing clinical service, but you are being a very good listener and you might be able to connect them with services, that kind of thing. So yeah, um, Jacob sent a letter for the 14th anniversary that we had hmm. and had a lot of kind words, but Jacob also had a heartbreaking story about their cat that I wanted to signal lamp, if you will. That heart's flea treatment, that very common drops behind the neck. Have you ever seen these before? Yes. Uh, do, you, do you have any experience with them? No, but I know they're bad. Yeah, they're very bad. So what happened was Jacob's cat... 
they use the heart's fleet treatment, which is anecdotally the most commonly recommended treatment for fleas. Uh, and you're supposed to do it like once a month or something. And you, you, you put this chemical that goes on the back of their neck. And I think it, the reason why you put it on the back of their neck is I think it gets absorbed into their skin. And then that chemical goes through their body and will uh, repel fleas or something. And so what happened to Jacob's cat was the cat had immediate health problems mm. upon the first administration of the treatment. And then the cat died. And the vet said it was very likely the heart's flea drops that mm -hmm. killed the cat. Uh, as another example, our dog, Chloe, possibly had the same problem and died. And uh, what happened to her was she was administered the flea treatment and soon after had massive neurological problems for years oh. and just the most horrific traumatic seizures I, I, it was awful it was there were thousands i don't know hundreds and hundreds of these seizures that the dog would go through and it was it was really awful to see it was really awful to to deal with and of course we did all sorts of treatments and we went to so many different vets and we did all these diets and we did all these meds and we did all these things and some things would seemingly work for a while and then it wouldn't work and then eventually it killed her and so i just want to put out there and i looked up the science it's a well-known risk factor for neurological disorders in pets this heart's flea treatment or any kind of similar treatment where you, it's the same compound. And the fact that it's well understood and well known, and yet this is still on the market and still often being recommended by vets is a crime in my, in my book. Well, and it, we had a really hot late summer and our dogs had fleas. And I remember it was like kind of an emergency and I researched this and Beth was like, no, we can't because she researched it and got, and then it was like, oh my God, we have to pay $75 for flea treatments at the vet for our dog. But it's like, I don't want this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know the percentage risk, but it's significant enough that I would say absolutely no. <laughs> it's fleas, right? It's not like it's a life or death matter, yeah. right? If it was life or death, then it's like, well, maybe it's worth the risk if you're rolling the dice. But and fleas aren't great, but it, there are other treatments that don't risk killing your animal mm -hmm. and also, or having your, your pet go through years and years of neurological problems that are extremely traumatic and hard and will eventually kill. It's, you know, it's, um, obviously I have a lot of feelings about it and we don't know if it was the flea treatment, of course, because dogs, animals can suddenly or you know, over time develop neurological disorders just from genetics or something. So there's no way to know, but it, there's enough evidence pointing in that direction that that's what was wrong with Jacob's cat and with our dog, which is just heartbreaking anyway. <sighs> okay. Anonymous upper tier patron. She wrote in and said, and I did send you this question, by the okay. way, did therapists who were trained in the 60s, 70s and 80s receive very different training 
that did not emphasize active listening skills and creating a safe emotional space. I'm saying this because out of five therapists I spoke to in the last several years, two were older adults who did who who did not utilize empathy. They were poor listeners Mm -hmm. and they were pretty invalidating. But the three younger therapists I spoke with responded empathetically, validated my feelings, and utilized active listening. Is is it in the training, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they were definitely trained to be experts, and to, to that someone would come to you because they wanted authority. And it was actually feminist theory that really changed that. That maybe we could, you know, be in this experience together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was. I mean, when we taught, it was dramatic, <laughs> like how some of the older therapists trained younger students you know and then they get to my class and i'm like hey that's not gonna fly in the modern world like Mm -hmm. let me give you another option of how to be so for sure culturally culturally we have radically shifted in terms of do you go to a therapist to speak to an expert or do you go and this is actually the work of judith blank (laughs) oh my god this is trauma treatment 101, which is the first thing is to tell your story is to be validated mm-hmm. um, and not uh, shamed. Mm-hmm. Or that you would come to therapy to hear um, what you're doing wrong versus a strength-based approach. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, uh, anecdotally for me, I this would is say, also an East Coast West Coast thing. I was going to say because uh, as you're answering, I'm like, oh, I, I bet you anything on the East Coast, yeah, it definitely had that delineation mm-hmm. between these expert, psychoanalytically oriented older folks, older white men, who were definitely talking one up, one down, and were not very good listeners. And then you have this younger group who were much better listeners and much more aware of things. And on the West Coast, though, I, I think w- the therapy style that emerged over here was very Carl Rogers, Virginia Satir, all that stuff. So not only feminist orient, you know, influenced, but also systems theory, which is also very acknowledging of the person of the therapist, and that you're not an expert, and you're not you don't know objective reality, the cybernetics of cybernetics, as systems thinkers will call it. But so I think it depends on where you live to some extent, and I also think it's it just depends on because I've also I also anecdotally for myself see in my life in my circle that there are older therapists in their sixties, seventies, eighties who are some of the best listeners. I've ever met. And I also anecdotally will notice that some of the younger therapists, 30s, 40s, therapist age, that there isn't as much emphasis on the super Carl Rogers style of validation because it's sort of fallen out of favor. You know, the the humanistic movement was humongous in the West Coast in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think the folks that came up during that time, and I was trained by those people in the 90s, and so the the severe listening style, 
and the severe living in the here and now and the mm-hmm. severe like really attending to someone and having a lot of empathy was definitely ingrained in me and I don't see that as much anymore. I don't I don't know what's really happening of course cuz I'm not like observing everyone I don't know exactly what the research would show if they've even done studies around this but anecdotally it just depends where someone came up because certainly there I I have trainees that I've worked with or students that I noticed who were excellent excellent listeners and either knew to do that or were trained to do that or something so I'm not saying that novice therapists are bad listeners in my experience I'm just saying that it really just depends on on where they were trained. I've obviously seen older folks who were along the lines of what you're saying, where they're definitely thinking of themselves as objective uh, authorities. So, yeah, I, I think it just kind of depends. But at the very least, what Anonymous Separatist Patron is expressing is, uh, regardless of age, they went to a number of therapists who just didn't seem to provide any empathy they went to some other therapists who did. For them, it's very um, related to age, but I would just say it's just kind of a crapshoot in terms of who's going to be a good listener. And this is a, a second, third career for many people. So you might have, this is always was weird when we were young, is that people thought I could have more experience than somebody in their 60s Yeah, because um, they were doing it as a second or third career <laughs> it's always like people would look to them like they were the expert and i'd be like you know actually yeah. i have 20 years of experience and that person has three which is you know that's cool that's fine hey that's cool yeah i had the exact same experience in uh early in my career i was a supervisor and but it was just a one or two years after i graduated and one of my uh, i don't know if it was a supervisee but it was an intern and he was in his 60s mm-hmm. And everyone treated him, even people who knew the fact that he was an intern, everyone treated him as if he was a superior to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember being pretty bothered by that. And that was when I was like, I wish I had gray hair. That's -hmm. that's where I started to wish that I looked older because I didn't even look my age when I was first a therapist. (laughs) Going on with there in email, for example, with one therapist who wasn't listening very well, I was was interrupted often, and the therapist ended up speaking 60% of the Mm. session time. Mm -hmm. They called their approach mirroring, which which looked like... I've never even uh, heard of this. I would start speaking about my issue, and as soon as the therapist heard something of interest, they would interrupt me and give me their opinion. Mm -hmm. They would say to me, oh, this is childish, or they would compare me to their friend who was so much better at the issue than I was. So shamming in here, that is not mirroring. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That, well, it's not any, it's bad. It's not a it's, therapeutic technique that I've ever heard. It's being a bad friend. Like <laughs> friends so shouldn't even do that. So yeah, this is extremely poor therapy and it's not mirroring. Mirroring is basically emulating client's behavior meaning that you would use similar phrases, tone of voice, facial expressions. You're essentially trying to make the client feel so heard and understood that you are embodying their, you know, like a client says, oh my God, yesterday my husband was so annoying to me. 
and there's a certain tone of the voice and you might as a therapist uh, express a similar facial expression or body pose you know of of what the client is saying and then you're like oh so he he was really annoying to you in in a very similar voice as they're saying that's mirroring that's mm-hmm. an example to chime in with your own stu- stupid judgment of the client is not fucking mirroring my god uh going on with the email i felt pretty upset and teary during the session and and invalidated this therapist did not use a single empathic or emotionally validating response at the end of the session i told them that i felt judged and why i felt judged they defended themselves and then repeated twice that they never get offended needless to say i will never see that person again yeah so as I, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but I often think of this Forrest Gump saying stupid is a stupid does. <laughs> when you have a therapist that exhibits such stupid behavior, they are probably globally stupid. It's not, you know, because the, the, it's not you. Right. You're not. It's not an anomaly. It's not like, oh, they're just stupid when it comes to mirroring. No, they're probably stupid in a variety of ways. I would, the prime example of this. And that's not mirroring. I mean, the fact that they're calling it mirroring, it's like you've developed your own way of being and you've put a clinical term to it, which is not what you're doing. Which therapists will do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, But not only are they stupid about that, but they're stupid about defending themselves, right? About not taking feedback. Right, I never get offended. Yeah. Okay. The reason why I often think this is because in these ethical briefs that I get or these uh, these um, examples of therapists being sued, these mm-hmm. malpractice briefs that I get from my malpractice insurance, you'll as the story progresses in, in the beginning, worse it just gets worse and, and worse. And, and these these therapists who will commit one ethical violation, it'll be found that they're doing it in a variety of areas mm-hmm. and their paperwork is always terrible. Mm-hmm. So it's like, not only are they a bad therapist, they don't know what they're doing, but also their, uh, you know, their documentation is atrocious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's pretty rare that you'll find that a therapist will just be bad in a sliver of the overall task or skills of a therapist. But anyway, let's take a break, get back more emails. What do you say? Yes. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a new year, so of course it's time for New Year's resolutions. But often, those are just manifestations of internalized harmful voices, voices that tell us we're not good enough. So instead of making a resolution to change something, let's recognize that we are already good enough. Now, most people think of therapy as a place for us to work on our problems. But there are several schools of thought within the field of psychotherapy that adamantly reject that paradigm, like narrative therapy and solution-focused. Instead, these clinicians help us focus on what we're already doing well. And by helping us do that, data shows that we often will gravitate towards more beneficial patterns. Well, one place you can find such therapists is on BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving a try. So, celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Kirk today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kirk. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We're back from the break. Patron Layla from Ottawa. She says, have you ever read your students' ratings of you on RateMyProfessors.com? I just remembered using this when I was a student and wondering if you ever read your students' comments about you. Rebecca, have you ever? Uh, I, I remember, so I stopped teaching 10 years ago, which is hard to imagine. So it was just starting. And I remember, like, there was one, and it was, like, pretty benign. But, you know, now with social media, like, it pops up. Yeah. People who don't like me pop up from time to time and let it rip. Really? What do you mean? Oh, you know, I mean, you had to erase something off of YouTube comments that got really into why this person didn't like me. Oh. Um, I don't remember that, but okay. Yeah. So, yeah, people really hold those opinions. So this is someone that knew you as a student? Yeah. And were commenting in the on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Wow. And, I mean, there's nothing wrong with voicing your opinion, but it, was it abusive or? Uh, you know, there is a quadrant of people who don't like every aspect of me on YouTube, including my the sound of my voice. And yeah. People find me dismissive, and this person was like, well, you should have taken a class from her. I only saw the edited, redacted version of it, but I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The. But most of your students liked, liked you. I hope so. Yeah, it's a very, being a professor is very strange because, like, you try, I mean, some of it is, like, it's not a creative class in some ways, especially in our field. Like, there's certain content that you have to get to, and there's certain markers that your students have to get to, and sometimes they're very upset when they don't make those markers, and sometimes they also hold their work as very, very precious and well, if, weren't you also, and I can cut this out later if you don't want me to include this, but weren't you also saying that the type of student that becomes an art therapist was different in some there, ways? There's some intensities. I was, uh, two different groups of students tried to fire me, get me fired. And the, both of the times it was, she's too mean. It was one of those things like, God, if I had been a man, this wouldn't, you know, she wasn't motherly enough. She didn't make me feel good about myself. She was, she's too intense. But then the second group was like, she has too much power. She can get people hired and fired after graduate school, which was completely untrue. Um, And nobody would confront me to my face. This was all, they all just wanted the, my boss to report these facts to me. That's to put the kibosh on the whole thing. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What do you think that's about? uh, Well, um. In anyone in the teaching profession knows that this happens from time to time, that students pick you as the reason XYZ isn't happening. Um, we also statistically know that female professors get ranked, I think it's like 80% lower than male professors. Like, it is dramatic. Yeah, it was pretty clear, uh, especially since I worked alongside dozens of women professors. And... I would hear things that students would say to them, students that I knew. And I thought, my God, 
a student would never even come close to saying that mm-hmm. to me or doing that to me. That the disrespect and the the transference maybe or something. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, yeah, I I was astounded. I mean, I couldn't believe one once one woman therapist uh, professor. She was also there. Talked about how a male client or not a male male student picked up a chair and mm. threw it at her or something like that, and I just thought, my God! I mean, the amount of of sexism, you know, that women have to deal with. I just thought, my, yeah, and the, and the amount of privilege. I, I just felt I felt guilty, but I felt so lucky that people just don't do that to me, you know. Well, and I. The second time it happened, I went to my boss's boss, who I liked a lot. I was like, you know, here we are again. I don't know what you want to do if you want to, like, reprimand me. And she said, I'm not firing you. (laughs) Like, they don't, you know, students can have their own experience of you. But, like, what you provide, we really, really need. And you do a good job at it. I'm sorry they're mad at you. And, like, you're the person that they're mad at right now. And especially in... Was this Jane or the one before Jane? This was actually, uh, oh my God! This was she was the, this was the one before Jane that was so great that loved like me so much. Like in the much. late aughts. Yeah. Yeah. What was her name? I can. Yeah. We'll We're thinking it. of the same yeah, person. Yeah. Um, she was dean of psychology. Yeah, she was amazing. She's a huge mentor of mine still to this day. Oh really? You, yeah. I mean, okay. I just reached out. I've reached out a couple times. Okay. Anyways, um, just horrible that I can't remember her name. I can picture her face. She was not on board with me being hired, by the way. Oh really? She she eventually warmed up to me, but she was like, "Why do you want to hire this this Yahoo? He's <laughs> he's he doesn't have any special thing about you know because usually when you're looking for a professor, yeah, you're the things that often will impress deans and universities is you have this robust research area, Mm -hmm. publication history, or you're well known for this and that. And I didn't have any of that Uh, at that point. I was, you know, we uh, knew your potential young man. (laughs) We could see. Well, Paul did. Right. Yeah. But the rest of everyone else apparently did not, but she, she eventually absolutely warmed up to me and, and we were friends. Yeah. I mean, what gets, so people in therapy graduate school, And I don't know if this is true of all graduate programs, but they have a lot of fear that they're not getting taught the right thing, that they're not learning the right thing, that you're not teaching it the right way, that too much is being asked of them, that no one could ever meet these standards. There's a lot of intensity. And and they're having massive imposter syndrome and massive yeah. worries because there's a lot of responsibility and it's expensive. Are they yeah. going to make it? And there's no way to alleviate that anxiety, no. you know? And so if they choose, then they can route all that anxiety at you. Like all that anxiety is your fault. And also, um, you know, teaching classes like multiculturalism where People have to address their personal biases. That's a landmine there. And also in case consult, where you're getting ready for someone to graduate and they have all of that anxiety. Did you listen to my recent episode with Zane that I published called University Racism? I listened to it. Yeah, we talked. He's a fellow professor and he 
we talked about that for half the time. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to hear what you thought about that whole conversation. Uh, You could, I'm sure you would be able to relate to a lot of it. So anyway, yeah. yeah. But also, I mean, just the gender intensity, obviously we just said this, but I'll say it again, that, you know, I don't present as a loving mother. And I always think of, may her memory be a blessing carol stanley who did present as a loving mother mm-hmm. she died by the she way died. that's why rebecca said that she yeah. died a couple few years ago or something but you know i am i'm intense and i'm opinionated and i think the best way to get an opinion through to someone is humor and i'm not gonna laugh at their jokes if they're not funny and i'm gonna ask of people because i want them to succeed and yeah. that's not all necessarily attractive if what you really what the therapy school for was to find a nice warm mommy like Carol Stanley. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, to answer the question from my side, rate my professors, I, I did look at it because I was extremely curious years and years ago. Cause I don't know if it's that popular anymore, but there was a time when I feel like it was more popular, like late aughts, early tens. And, I I had some ratings and it was nice to see. I think I was cringing as I opened it up like, "Oh my god, what's it going to be?" But it was, you know, nice things. But the one thing that there are two things that were interesting, notable. One is that they have this chili pepper. Yes, were you hot? Yeah, meaning that you're a hot professor, mm-hmm. meaning that you're attractive. And I found that to be extremely problematic to have as a part of this uh, rating thing. And someone said that I was hot, you know, and I'm like, I don't know. I just didn't, I just thought like, come on. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. It it's, may- let's grow up. <laughs> <laughs> and also like. Uh, I did not wait, get a chili pepper. No. Wait, so that's what you're thinking about? And cl- come on, you know. Um I mean, of course, as a man, it's not threatening to me as much as it would be otherwise. But I don't know. It just felt on one hand, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I guess it's the Internet. So what are you going to do? But on the other hand, I just felt like, I don't know. The other thing that bothered me was at least back then, I don't know if it still is, is they had like four or five different dimensions that you were rating your professor on, like how much did they know how much did they teach you and one of the dimensions that you rated on a scale from one to five was how difficult the Mm. the professor was right so if you're a five you you're very easy and if you're a one you're extremely negative right it's extremely difficult right exactly Mm -hmm. and so i had a lot of you know the Raiders would put me at like a like a three, you know, mm-hmm. meaning that I was I wasn't easy, but I wasn't mm-hmm. like impossible, and that brought down my overall mm-hmm. average. <laughs> so this, at least back then, the RateMyProfessors.com index ranking was based on how easy a professor is, mm-hmm. which cannot be related. You should never, especially in graduate school, mm-hmm. when you're paying all this money, you should never seek an easy professor yeah. because you're not going to be pushed. You're not going to learn much. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a walk in the park. And I've had graduate classes like that that I say I selfishly appreciated how easy it was. But looking back, I'm like, well, it was kind of a waste of time and money. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that kind of bugged me. 
but you know who cares because it doesn't really matter <laughs> but i will tell you just overall feedback from students i there is something about so recently i've figured out that i have mild obsessive compulsive personality disorder which has in my conceptualization trauma regarding criticism mm. and so the answer to the flaw being pointed out traumatically is to be perfect it's mm -hmm. it's pathological perfectionism and i'm not diagnosable as ocpd but i'm you know i have some traits and i didn't realize this back then but i did notice the feelings that i had when I would, because at Antioch, you would get evaluations. Students would anonymously give you feedback and, and rank you or, you know, fill out a form not only of different, uh, you know, Likert scales of how good you are as a professor, but also they would have qualitative feedback, you know, sentences like this, I, this professor, da-da-da. You would have it midway through the quarter and at the end of the quarter in every class that you taught. And... You're supposed to read it, obviously, mm -hmm. because you need to learn from feedback. I'll never forget the very first time I taught and I had these at the end of the quarter. I knew I needed to read it and I wanted to read it, but I also was terrified. Mm -hmm. I And I thought, well, eventually it'll get easier. It never got easier. Mm -hmm. it, and I, I really, I remember note, noting this, that after teaching for 20 plus years, and after so much, because eventually I became in charge of outcomes and I was in charge of analyzing all the data mm -hmm. from all these evaluations and not to brag, but I ended up, you know, my, my ranking overall was pretty good. It wasn't as good as like Jerry, for example, he, he was always off the charts, but, but I was definitely in a category of clearly I'm doing the right thing mm -hmm. in my classes, you know, that on average students are satisfied for the most part you know occasionally you have a student that's not but on but i'm doing pretty well compared to other professors not to brag that is bragging but not to brag i am bragging though um and and i worked my fucking ass off for that mm -hmm. it wasn't just random you could say it was partially a result of sexism and pref and privilege but it was not because I just phoned it in. I mean, I worked my ass off every quarter. I taught family of origin for the entire 25 years. And every time I taught it, I revamped it. Mm -hmm. And that's stupid because especially when I'm getting good reviews every mm -hmm. time, why am I revamping it? Because I'm always tweaking. I'm always trying to make it even more perfect, you know? And so I worked really hard and and yet... Even later on, it was easier relative, but it was still, to this day, reading those evaluations at the end of the quarter was one of the scariest things that I ever did. And This it, is so interesting because why? I think because of the harshness of the criticism I got. It I, broke you of... <laughs> I was just like, whatever. Like... But did you have that feeling initially? Because I find that a lot of professors. Take oh yeah, it I mean, I worried at the beginning, and then when I, I but uh, yeah, my experience. I mean, obviously, this is so interesting that our experiences were so different. Yeah, and it probably speaks, you know, to our personality and all kinds of things. But I just let, I just let it go, and I was like, I have to. They need someone to teach this class. I'm a pretty good person to teach it. You know, if something f flagrant. I'll address it, but 
I just got to teach this class. Oh, for me, it was literally the foundation of most of my self-esteem mm. was based on those evaluations. Like really? it, it was, I, I had so much of my ego invested in mm-hmm. how my students saw me. And when because everything I- was working well, then it was, a, it worked out well, but occasionally, or when there was a question mark, then it would really freak me out. And it's weird because to contrast with my clients, clients would sometimes terminate with me, mm-hmm. complain about me or whatever, you know, it was rare, but it would happen. And there's something about that that just doesn't tweak me. I don't know what it was about clients. but Because I really ranked my success as a professor of students coming back to me after they graduated and saying, I made it in this way, I made it in that way. And you had a lot of students that would do that. Yeah. And it was actually the thing that kept me up at night is the students that I thought were good that never um, did a day in the field. Um, They just went off to do something else. That was was what I saw as my failing. Mm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Which I, it's something I have no, like talk about something you have zero control over. Yeah. What your students do after graduate school is like. Oh, so you would feel bad. Like, what you know, did I not. Like you failed or something. You know, I just, yeah. The the ones that I thought were really good that never, there's one I still think about. That, and you irrationally believe it's your fault that you failed or something. Or just like wished that I, yeah. I don't think it's my fault. I just wished I could have helped her on that journey a little bit more. Yeah. And you know, the one thing I learned in graduate school is there's a fair amount of people that are, they don't need to work. Not a fair amount, but there's like, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20%. Where they have a spouse that- Or a trust fund or whatever. And you know, they do the work they see in graduate school, like, oh, this is awful. This is hard work. Yeah. And they choose to never work in the field. And I was, unprepared for that both as a student and as a professor that people would go through a program like that and not need to use it as a job yeah me too i i thought it would be 0.01 percent of students that would do that but i and even to this day i always assume that's that's that that's the percentage but then when i hear about people that went through the program and decided not to become a therapist or maybe five years out switched careers, it always surprises me. I'm always like, wow, huh. And I think it's, I think there's, it might even be more of a problem now because I'm experiencing more and more students who are in, that I'm teaching. And when I talk with them about what they want to do after graduation, they don't necessarily have clinical work at the top of the list Mm -hmm. because there's so many other things one can do. You can become an author. You can become a a podcaster, for example. And to me, I'm like, if you don't have that that drive, that Mm -hmm. calling to be a clinician, I don't know if this is the right path. There are other mm-hmm. paths you can take if you just want to be a podcaster who talks mm-hmm. about psychology or something, you know? And it, it's, I would always get a little concerned because back in our day, there was, there was really only one thing you'd right. be doing post-graduation. Yeah. If you didn't have the calling, then, you know, it would be pretty clear that this wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. 
Because, you know, there's a deep drive that you and I have always had since we decided to enter this to... Like to, fools. To do what we do, right? Yeah. You know, it's because there's so many other things we could have done with mm-hmm. our privilege of education. We, we could have worked in tech. We were, we were in that generation. Oh, yeah. We could have re- worked in tech and retired yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I had friends who were doing that parallel with me. I remember, I, so this was 1995 or 96. I had a friend that ran the help desk at Microsoft. And he said, I want you to come work for me. You'd be perfect. And I was like, oh, I'll take two buses to get there. And you'd get, uh, you'd get stock options. i get stock options. Yeah. And I turned him down. And So many people of that Microsoft generation. They never worked again. Yeah. Because of the, I just because kick of the stock. myself all the time. Oh, I, you do? Oh, yeah. I'm like, why didn't I fucking take that gig? <laughs> well, I don't. God, I, I'm an idiot. I'm so glad that I didn't do that. I it, those it people is, like all bought like they were like 23 buying their own homes. Yep. Like my, I had friends. I had I had a number of friends that that's what happened. Um, it, I mean, I I was tempted by the devil, if you will. Um, during graduate school or just before graduate school, after I decided to become a therapist, by a friend of mine was starting his own business and was it was starting to just roll in money. It was in tech. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice? to Because at the time, I'm sleeping on my childhood mattress on the, on the floor. Like, I, 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 I have a mattress from my childhood. It's been my mattress my whole entire life. There are big blood stains from when I was a kid and I had bloody noses. You know how kids, they get bloody noses. I don't know. Is that a thing? But I felt like I got bloody noses all the time when I was a kid. And, you know, I would wake up in the morning not realizing that I suddenly, you know, sprung a leak in the middle of the night. And I uh, I remember the blood would be clotted up in my in my nostrils and there'd be this huge pool of blood on the on the bed. <laughs> this is too graphic. There were at least two or three gigantic bloodstains on this mattress, and that's what I was sleeping on when I was in graduate school, and literally on the ground. I didn't have a bed frame. Mm-hmm. So that was my situation, and I'm watching my friend and friends go into tech and buy houses, and I just thought, like, how is this happening? And so what I toyed with was my friend needed someone to work on his website. And at the time, there were very few people who Mm -hmm. knew how to design websites. And so I got a book on HTML, which is the language of websites from my understanding. And I started self-teaching myself how to do HTML because I thought maybe I could tap into that stream of cash and I could actually buy my own house or get a different mattress at the very least without bloodstains on it. But then I, I decided not. I said, no, I, I would only be doing it for the money. Mm. That's I wouldn't be doing it because I love it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing it because it makes the world a better place. I'd only be doing it for the money and I do not want to live that way. Mm-hmm. And God bless people who do. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And money is important. And when I got into this business as a therapist, I definitely tried to optimize my my money situation. You know, I, it wasn't that I don't I don't eschew money. I don't like ignore the reality of it. I I've I've built something in my career of 
actually Look at you now being able to pay my bills yeah i no longer have a mattress with you know i i have a bed frame for example and um and so i'm not saying that but i yeah i i just uh yeah but that makes me sad for you rebecca that it almost sounds like you regret or something well i mean it was hard not to <laughs> not to at least think yeah like I mean, with what the if? amount of money and the amount of things but that people I can't to imagine do. you being a Microsoft. I know, but in a way, it would have been like being a therapist. I mean, I think what my friend saw in me was like I just didn't talk over people. Like I would have actually listened to the problem. Like you know, when we were teaching together, I was the tech helper yeah. to teach people how to use Blackboard. Or the Sakai, we use a different version of it. Yeah, basically, it's the university uh, Facebook situation where you you build a class website. Yeah. You, there's all these cool tricks that you yeah. can do. If you've been a university in the past yeah. twenty years, you, you know it. these things. But just you know, imagine sixty-five-year-old professors being like, "What is this thing? I can't possibly do it." And I'm like, "Here's all the cool stuff you can do with it." So you know, I did have that job later uh, on. Like yeah. you know, there's yeah. A- I just I, I want to just end this episode with this I just want to put a fine point on this so Rebecca is not the pinnacle of tech knowledge I mean you're probably given your age you're probably better than average but you're not like no other business would consider you to be the trainer of tech essentially the IT individual and yet at our university in the psychology or were you you were you Sakai training for everyone no just and just for psychologists yeah just I mean for- I think it speaks to the nuances of our field that you have to have someone that can both handle the technology and speak to a 65 year old who cannot about the technology like it's yeah. very specific I'm not yeah. doing like general IT support I'm training somebody and something that they think is impossible. Yeah. And I'm saying, this is kind of fun. Yeah, it's bizarre. And anyone who has run into this knows what I'm talking about. I'm not the first person to talk about it, of course. But the tech literacy or the terror that these individuals, these older individuals had around, because it, it was pretty simple, right? I mean, there were some quirky aspects to the interface. But it was definitely like people at the end of their careers being like anything new was so completely overwhelming and disastrous yeah Yeah. so that's actually how rebecca and i officially met yes and i mean we had met but it's how we ended up becoming friends and knowing each other was because rebecca trained me oh is that oh you don't you don't remember that i don't i mean i was at that point i was training like not to say that you're not special no no i was knee deep in it I thought we've talked about this before. No, I have no remembrance. I, I mean, I knew you of you. You probably didn't stand out in that because I had so many crazy yeah, experiences yeah, yeah, yeah. with people being like, "Is this the Google?" Goal? Well, I think you were or, also like, bringing in. I think you know, were also recently hired. Yeah. Well, and also like there are requirements for college students of what their computers can do, but not for at that point, not for college professors. So people were bringing in these like ancient. 20 pound laptops yeah and i was having to like know enough to configure yeah it wasn't that long so this this would have been in 2009 because that's when i came on full time at Mm -hmm. the university and that's when you would have been training me on it 
because I would have needed to know of it right away. Because, and I remember uh, uh, because I had taught at Antioch for already twelve years, but I was as, a, as an adjunct. But I'd taken off a couple years because I just I got totally burnt out on teaching for a variety of reasons, and Paul sucked me back in because <laughs> I was done with teaching mm-hmm. on two different occasions. Mm-hmm. I quit and said, "I'm never teaching again." Like this is too much work it's too stressful it's not enough pay like I, I i enjoy it i love teaching i love the students there's so many things about it that i love but overall i just can't it's it's such a burden on i would i would get so nervous i'd have to take a anti-anxiety medication just to teach only to teach like it was the only wow. thing that i took that it was a beta blocker it's just for mm-hmm. uh, performance anxiety but i would i, I took it at 15 years into teaching, I was still taking this medication because I was, I'm so terrified of public speaking, Rebecca. Like that's, that's this is shocking. It's I'm not, learning, it's not you're an onion here. I'm learning so much. About you. <laughs> yeah. I, I was in my office and you were teaching me and it was then that I was just like, Oh, this is great that, um, someone my age, cause we were the same age and, there was a couple other professors that were around our age, mm-hmm. maybe one or two as an art therapist that was, and she wasn't there very long, but everyone else was 65 and older yeah. and we were 39, 38. Yeah. And it was, um, it felt very good to have. It was like, you look into someone's eyes and you're like, yes, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not alone. <laughs> I can talk about anything that's happened in the last 20 years. And everyone out there, Please take care of yourself. Why should they take care of themselves, Rebecca? Because you're worth it. I did it right that time.